This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we begin a journey, a little bit like what Israel experienced when they got out of Egypt and started on their way to the promised land. In many ways, that is the Christian life. It's life lived in the wilderness. And as we see with the people of Israel in that journey, there are a number of challenges that can come our way and trip us up as we make our way to our promised rest. Number of snares that our enemy puts in place to dupe us, to hoodwink us as we make our way from new birth to glorification with Jesus. Today we're beginning a topic that will unpack over the next five weeks five traps, five snares that our enemy puts out there to try to dupe us in our journey from new birth to glorification with Jesus. And today we begin with a topic that content-wise is heavy, but incredibly relevant, and it's more of a talk than a sermon. According to Genesis 1, before there was anything, God spoke. Before there was anything else that could speak, God spoke. Now, that either means God created language or language was already innate to him, an essential attribute of him, maybe both. And it has an enormous impact on how we think about words and language. Kevin Van Hooser writes, he says, In the beginning, God created language. It is his good gift designed to be enjoyed by his creatures. Moreover, it is the preeminent instrument for cultivating personal relationships between one human and another and between humanity and God. Our use of words matters to God. It's not a matter of personal style or personality or preference. It's more than that. The number of scriptures that talk about this are voluminous, but maybe the best place to start with Jesus himself in Matthew 12, he writes, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, when Jesus refers to speaking good, he's not talking about grammar and syntax. Hallelujah. (laughs) He's not even talking about the cliche, if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. The word good is a theological and moral category. 
It's a theological and moral category. There are theologically and morally sound ways to use language. And there are theologically and morally unsound or evil ways to use language. But who is it that defines what it means to speak good? A little later in this passage, Jesus says people will give account for every careless word they speak. Who are they giving account to? God himself. This means that God defines what it means to speak good. In order to learn how to use language in ways God would approve of, it seems to me we need to pay close attention to how he uses language. For if he is the judge of whether or not people have spoken careless words or good words, he must be the standard. And if the words contained in the Bible are the words of God, which we believe them to be, that in order to use those words appropriately, we have an obligation to understand them as God meant to convey them. Now, what we are facing as foreigners, strangers, and exiles in the world today is a challenge to this way of stewarding language. We are seeing a destabilization of language and meaning. Some of the language that is being destabilized is very important language to God. Language that is not ambiguous, but language that God has made transparently clear. One of the obvious examples of this is how fluid the definition of male and female has become. I don't have time to show you just how fixed God believes the definition of male and female are, but I am assuming with most of you, I don't need to do that. God's word does not present us with ambiguous definitions to the words male and female. And by changing or distorting the definition of certain words, society ends up generating a chain reaction. It creates a chain reaction that results in calling something good evil and calling something evil good. Now, doing this with language always receives the sharp end of God's rebuke in the scriptures. You can look at the book of Isaiah for that. What compounds the problem and makes this even more complicated for Christians is that our culture is subtly getting us to embrace secular categories like homophobia, patriarchy, affirming, non-affirming, etc. Categories that are born more out of sociology textbooks than the Bible. A tad more sinister is the subtle encouragement we receive to embrace secular definitions to words like racism, justice, oppression, misogyny, etc. And when we espouse secular categories and secular definitions, what happens when those categories and definitions don't harmonize with how the scriptures talk about those things? Something has to give, which is why some well-known faces have shared their deconversion from Christianity stories with the world. Now, if that wasn't enough, in our therapeutic world, where many of us have been, I would say that many of us have been masterfully conditioned to emotionally activate in response to certain buzzwords like equity, inclusion, safety, hate, etc. 
And because there's enormous pressure to respond to these buzzwords in a swift and almost preferred manner, it doesn't foster the necessary environment for us to slow down and ask two important questions. What do you mean by that? And how does the Bible define this? Learning to slow down and ask these two questions is the overarching takeaway from this message if we're going to faithfully navigate the waters of our age. Josh Howerton, who pastors a church in the Dallas area, provides a good way to think about this, I think a model to follow. He suggests that whatever the word is that you're thinking about, imagine it's a circle. And so he does this with the word patriarchy, the circle. The patriarchy circle would have numerous things inside it that are sin and Christians reject. Abuse, the toxic belief that men are superior to women, the idea that all women submit to all men, etc. But the way the word patriarchy is being used, there are also many biblical good things that gets smuggled inside that circle and lumped under the negative label of patriarchy. The call upon men to lovingly lead their families, male eldership in the church, etc. As believers, we want to use language in theologically and morally sound ways like Jesus admonishes in Matthew 12. In order to do that in our day and age, we have to slow down and do two simple but very time-consuming things. Ask, What do you mean by that? And what does the Bible say about this? If the words we're thinking about are a circle, what should go inside that circle and what shouldn't? In the time remaining, I want to work through one example. Justice. Justice is an overlapping term, and by that I mean it's both secular and sacred. That is, people who, with no adherence to the Bible, use it and value it. We as Christians use it and value it because it's a thoroughly biblical term. Because we live in a world of redefinition, however, we still need to slow down and ask, what do you mean by that? And what does the Bible pack into the circle labeled justice? Now, it would take, just to be clear, this would take a 200-page book to fully capture how the Bible speaks about justice. So my expectations are modest, as yours should be too. I'm going to get you started on a methodology, and then you can go write that 200-page book. Okay? And when you're done, I'll, uh, I'll read it. Here's a good way to start. There are two Hebrew words in the Old Testament writers use when discussing matters pertaining to justice, mishpat and sadiq. Hebrew lexicons define these words using synonyms like proper or fitting. An action can be said to be unjust if it is out of alignment with a standard. Does it fit with the standard? Does it align to the standard? If it does, it's just. If it does not, it is unjust. So, obvious question, what is the standard? We would say, of course, the Bible is the standard. God himself is the standard. Yes, that's true. But let's get more specific than that. In studying the topic, there's something fascinating that occurs in the scriptures that I hadn't noticed before. Talk of justice does not ramp up until we get to those portions of scripture where the law of Moses is revealed and communicated to the people of Israel. Prior to Exodus 20, when Israel receives the Ten Commandments, the word justice occurs just once. 
After Exodus 20, talk of justice becomes commonplace. So in light of this, when answering the question, what is the standard implied in the biblical definition of justice, countless theologians have suggested that we start with the Ten Commandments. This would be a great place to begin. Now, of course, after receiving the Ten Commandments, there are three consecutive chapters wherein law after law after law is delineated to God's chosen people. God is unpacking the Ten Commandments. He's helping them apply the Ten to the minutia of everyday life. But the countless hundreds of them can be categorized within the Ten. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, he boils the hundreds down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is summed up in that. So in short, justice is a matter of loving God and loving neighbor. Both of those are justice issues. Loving God, loving neighbor has to go in our circle. Now to show you further how this works out, let me work, let me work through some, some passages. And we're going to start with passages that tilt in the direction of love for neighbor. Exodus 23, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, I'm going to set aside the killing part as an obvious one in matters pertaining to justice. Aside from that, there seems to be four stipulations under the rubric of love for neighbor as a justice issue. False witness, partiality, making false allegations, and accepting a bribe. False witness, partiality, making false allegations, accepting a bribe. Now, question, how much of that goes on in our world today? So to charge someone with an offense they're innocent of is injustice. To show favoritism to anyone, to anyone for any reason is injustice. Accepting bribes for this, that, or the other thing is an injustice. And we think about the definition of justice. Do these sorts of things enter your circle? Years later, the Lord would reiterate these very same sentiments. In Deuteronomy 16, he says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show par- partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Notice again that partiality and bribery show up in a passage densely packed with justice language. Partiality, bribery. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, perverted justice. How? By taking bribes. Justice is loving God and loving neighbor. In passages discussing justice toward neighbor, the issues of partiality and bribery come up again and again and again. This is sort of one category of passages that deal with justice for neighbor. Now there's another one. 
There's another category of justice passages pertaining to love for neighbor that pop up, and it has to do with our treatment of vulnerable people among us. The three words most often used are fatherless, widow, and sojourner. It happens again and again and again. Fatherless, widow, and sojourner. Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So these, these verses are describing God's way with people. Because he's a just God, he shows no favoritism, takes no bribe, and in fact provides the vulnerable with food and clothing, material aid. We see here a foreshadowing of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Justice to the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner is demonstrated through provision of food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. The Lord spoke through Isaiah to the nation of Judah, saying, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So justice toward neighbor is bound up with two larger categories of avoiding partiality and bribery and contributing to the material security of the most vulnerable among us. In Israel's day, that was the fatherless widow and the sojourner. Question again, what what goes inside our justice circle? What should go inside? Now, all I'm doing is attempting to provide you an example of how to do this. In a world where language is destabilizing, we want to be faithful stewards of it. Two critical questions we have to learn to slow down and ask are, what do you mean by that, and what does the Bible teach about this? Now, to give you a brief summation of what the lion's share of scriptures say about justice and injustice, here's a list. Give to those in need, outside the church and especially inside the church. This is a theme you see in the New Testament. It's a theme you see in the Old Testament. Tell the truth. Honesty is a justice issue. Deal honestly with one another in business dealings. Do not bear false witness. Give the agreed-upon wage at the agreed-upon time. Don't cheat workers out of their wages. Ensure a fair process in the court of law. Interesting, in the Bible, justice is not an achieved result, but it's equal treatment and a fair process. A wholesome heart attitude towards neighbors. Find ways to give opportunities for the poor to succeed. One of the great examples of that is the gleaning laws of the Old Testament. Fantastic example of this. When, when the people of Israel were harvesting their field, they were to leave the edges unharvested, and they were not to go back through the places that they had harvested to pick up the scraps that had been left behind. The edges and all the scraps in the middle of the field were left for the fatherless widow and the sojourner, the poor among them. Two interesting things. Number one, this is not a handout. It required the industry of the poor And second, it required the owner of the field to financially plan their lives in such a way that they have extra left over for those in need. Uh, Shun taking bribes, defrauding the weak and helpless in order to line our pockets, exploitation, cheating of the poor, land grabbing, stealing, bribing, cheating. In passages discussing justice, these are the things that you'll see. Now, in surveying all these passages that talk about justice, here's some observations I have. I've got four. Number one, justice is both more and less than we think of it today. It's both more and it's less than we think of it today. Bearing false witness about someone that is lying about someone is injustice. Gossip, slander. 
I'm not sure that's something we typically associate with being a justice issue. Taking bribes or offering them is an injustice issue. So when you think about the definition of justice, does that go in your circle? Having wholesome heart attitudes towards your neighbor is a justice issue. Is that in your circle? Justice is more than we think it is. The opposite is also true. It's less than we think it is. Today, there are nearly limitless categories of injustices. A quick internet search will reveal categories such as economic justice or injustice, which, as you've learned by now, may or may not be a justice issue, depending on how that word's being defined. Reproductive justice. Even facial justice. Is it, that's the new one for me. It basically, it says, if my facial expressions make you feel unpleasant, I have committed facial injustice. <laughs> Which, listen, if that's how we're going to, I'm sure I'm guilty of that every week. <laughs> I have looked at myself in the mirror, and I know that experience can be very unpleasant. <laughs> injustice is always wrong. It's always wrong. But the things we label injustice are not always what the Bible has in mind. Justice isn't necessarily everything you feel would be good for the world. So justice is both more and less than we think of it today. Second, none of these exhortations to live justly are given to non-believing people. None. Every one of them is directed at God's covenant people. The Bible never, ever, ever, ever creates the expectation that non-Christian people will behave justly. Ever. In fact, the expectation created is quite the opposite. In surveying the New Testament's moral imperatives, the New Testament's moral imperatives, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the New Testament is never interested in conduct and behavior itself. I can go further and say that the New Testament does not make an appeal for good behavior to anyone but Christian people. The New Testament is not interested as such in morality of the world. It tells us quite plainly that you can expect nothing from the world but sin, and that in its fallen condition, it is incapable of anything else. In Titus 3.3, Paul tells us that we were all once like this. There is nothing, according to the New Testament, that is so fatuous and so utterly futile as to turn to such people and appeal to them to live the Christian life. The truth is, it only has one message for people like that, the message of repentance. Oh, sure, we can make appeals to common decency and logic and law-abiding in order to get non-Christian people to live just lives. I'm not saying we don't do that. I think we should do that. I am saying, or rather maybe asking, what expectations do you have of non-Christian people? Are your expectations biblically calibrated? Third, the overwhelming majority of these exhortations to live justly have to do with how God's people treat each other. Israel was not sent to the promised land to reform social structures of the people who were already living there. God drove out those who were already living there in order to establish a new kind of society, a new kind of community, God's chosen people. The Lord was most interested in the reformation of his chosen people. Yes, after the dust settled, there were still isolated sojourners that the Israelites would bump into. We've already looked at how they were to be treated. 
God's people were not to cheat, swindle, rob, murder, accept bribes, defraud, hold back wages from them, but rather plan to contribute to their material security. But these calls to live justly have mostly to do with how one Israelite was to treat another. God was saying to them, now that I have saved you, now that I have redeemed you, here's how I want you to live with and among each other. The way their society operated as the people of God was to be a shining witness to the glory and the power of God. And this is true in both Old and New Testament. There are more exhortations for how Christians are to treat one another than there are exhortations for how Christians are to treat non-believers. Doubtless, stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan and those we looked at in 1 Peter call for us to tend to those in need outside our church and so have a good reputation among them as far as it depends on us. No question. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to an even more careful obedience to your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. Fourth, justice exhortations are behaviorally individualized. Behaviorally individualized. Murray Harris sums this up. He says, Christianity in its essence is concerned with the transformation of character and conduct rather than the reformation of societal structures. Its primary focus is on individual ethics within the Christian community rather than on corporate ethics within society at large, on interpersonal relationships rather than on social reformation through institutional change. The principal change sought is in the individual and the secondary in society through transformed individuals. This is why the new birth is the single greatest justice issue of our time. You want to see the world changed? See people converted. Now, let's go back to the justice circle. In short, it's love God, love neighbor. There's one outstanding issue in all of this talk about justice, all this talk about injustice. No one seems to be talking about the bedrock of all injustices, theistic injustice. If justice is giving someone their due as creations of God, as image bearers of God, why are we not talking about giving God his due? Giving God his due is a justice issue that's not being talked about enough. Remember our circle at its most basic. Inside our circle is love God, love neighbor. Loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is a justice issue. I don't have time to, to take you this right now, but Romans 1, 18 to 23 is a, an important passage. It's an important passage. Go back and read it. In there, it is talking about the unrighteousness of all human beings. When you see the word unrighteousness, remember its similarity to injustice. They're sibling terms. The whole passage is about idolatry. It's about how we have preferred things other than God more than God. It's the de-godding of God. This is idolatry. Not giving God his due. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a justice issue. That's called theistic justice. And in all the conversations and in all the books and all the articles being written on the topic of justice, I'm not hearing much about this one. Jesus himself said the first and greatest commandment, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's be clear about this. The single greatest injustice plaguing our nation and world today is not any ism, but idolatry. Even if you could find a community of humans who love each other perfectly, where there is no racism, sexism, classism, or any other ism, 
If God in that community is not given his due, then that community of humans is guilty of a grievous injustice. So what is it? What is justice? At its most basic, it's love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Hopefully I've shown you the work and thought that has to happen in a world like ours where language and meaning are undergoing a seismic destabilization. Two important questions to keep in mind. What do you mean by that? And what do the scriptures teach about this? It's not something that happens quickly. Now, in bathing in this topic for the past, well, it's been months, but intensely for the last month, there has been something that's been very clear to me. My failure to live a just life. Very clear. I have not always planned to have extra to give to those in need. I have not always spoken truthfully about others. I have not always entertained wholesome thoughts about my neighbor. I have been stingy, untruthful, and condemning. And above all, I at times have treated God with indifference, disinterest, and even defiance. I have fallen far short of Jesus' clear command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That has been very clear to me. And you know what? That's one of the points of Scripture. It's to hold up a mirror and say, look at yourself. It's one of the reasons it's there. In, In those moments when we see clearly and feel deeply our failure to live just lives, listen to this carefully. We cannot allow the devil to take us down the road of works righteousness that is paved with self-flagellation. Self-flagellation is just a form of works righteousness. That's not the answer. There's a better answer. First Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus, the only one who has ever lived a just life, suffered in the place of those who lived unjust lives. So God's pronouncement of righteous can be declared over those who have faith in Christ. If there was ever a time to be grateful for the righteous life Christ lived in our place, it's in moments when we feel acutely our failure to have done so. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that We are prone to wander. We are sheep that are foolish and stubborn. And we are prone to wander.
Lord, I pray that you would draw our attention back to where it needs to be. Knowing you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word and as your spirit illuminates who you are to us. Lord, I pray that you would reinstill in us a confidence in your word that our use of language, everything we need to know about it is contained in it. That we'd be faithful stewards of this good gift of language you've given to us. That we would be people who think your thoughts after you and see the world through your eyes. And God, I thank you for Jesus who lived a perfectly just life in our place. Our debt is enormous. The list of sins that can be charged against us is lengthy. And yet, your son has paid it all. We respond to that in worship, in gratitude, and we lift high and exalt the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.